What's up, friends? Welcome back to another episode of the Dr. Joey Munoz Show. In this episode, I took a deep dive into TRT, testosterone replacement therapy, with my good friend, Dr. Adam Hotchkiss. Uh, Adam is an expert in all things hormones, and he shared his expertise with us here on the show today. We talked about what even is TRT, what are different forms of TRT, what are some symptoms to look for to determine whether you need TRT, what are the differences between TRT and just taking steroids. We discussed different forms of TRT, as well as some uh, potential risks associated with the use of testosterone. Uh, some of those include perhaps infertility, cardiovascular disease, prostate cancer. Some of those are a little bit exaggerated and we discussed why that is and the risk of some of those things can be mitigated tremendously with proper use. And Adam gave uh, really great information and detail on all of those different topics. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Before we get into it, if you're enjoying the podcast thus far, you know I say this every single week, but I beg you, please, to leave a review and rate the podcast. It helps me tremendously. It only takes you a second. It helps me grow the podcast and reach more people. And it's just an easy way for you to show a token of your appreciation. Thank you so much, and I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Yo, Adam, what is up, my man? How are you doing today? Thank you for taking time to be here with us. Good, man. Yeah, thank you. Super excited to be. Awesome, dude. Well, you and I connected what? I can't even remember now. Probably at least six months ago, I was on your podcast, right? At least six months yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah, probably was, like that. And then we probably was... talked for, you know, six months prior to that, too. Yeah, I think that was right before... Um, Right before I launched my podcast, I don't, I don't think I had my podcast when I came on yours. Uh, it was either but like you, the, somewhere around there. Yeah, you and a couple of other friends really inspired me to do this because uh, I don't know if you remember, I was trying to do YouTube, and as you know, <laughs> it takes a lot of work, right? And I always jokingly say like a podcast is like a lazier form of doing uh, content, right? Because you can just have an organic conversation. But it is really cool to connect with a ton of people like you and other professionals and get to have a, a deep conversation on some topics, which, as we've talked about, is missed on social media, right? Yeah, for sure. No, I, I love the podcast format for that reason, because it's just like, it's kind of like you said, it's really easy to do. You just have a conversation, record it, but it's hard yeah. to get taken off for sure. Yeah, dude, um, I know I've told you, but guys, and I'll link this in, in the bio, if you guys want to check out like literally one of the best YouTube channels with in terms of quality of content, please check out Adam. Dude, your videos are amazing. The humor is great. And just like the punch, 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 info, info, info is fantastic. And it's pretty easy to understand. And you're covering some really cool topics. Um, so I definitely highly encourage everybody to go check it out. How did you get so like deep into YouTube, man? Because I think last time you and I spoke when on your podcast, I think you were just starting off with the YouTube and like not taking it super seriously yet, right? Yeah, so I actually like I love YouTube. I'm a huge connoisseur of YouTube. Like since since I started in the fitness space, you know, there was so many of the early fitness influencers who were on there just giving a lot of good information. I learned a lot yeah. from YouTube. I've also always been super passionate about the creative process. And then when I was actually in residency, I had a YouTube channel that had to be shut down. Unfortunately, I got in trouble through my residency program for making one. And that's bullshit. It was like during it was it sucked. It was a whole ordeal. But uh 
it was during COVID and there was times when if you weren't like on wards at COVID, then you got sent home because they tried to minimize anybody at the hospital. And so I was, you know, I couldn't go anywhere. I wasn't even working. So I'm like, I'm going to learn like videography and, and photography. And I kind of taught myself. So I made a pretty cool YouTube channel then and got really into editing. And then it got shut down and I was pretty jaded on it. But now that I'm like, you know, a free agent, not a resident anymore, I was like, yeah, I might as well yeah. do it again. But it's different. The times change so much. Like, Back then, like, you know, fitness influencers, you and I grew up, they got away with just holding the camera out and being like, hey, guys, what's up? You know, today I'm going to go hit chest. But these days, like by the time you say, hey, guys, people are like boring next, next. So yeah. you have to have like this, like Mr. Beast type mentality that if you don't hook them in the first three seconds and just start hitting, you know, like it, yeah. their people are going to swipe off. And now I'm trying to figure out how do I incorporate that style with some scientific knowledge because we have people like Derek, but those are like three hour videos of him being like, um, hypothalamus will, but, and you know, it's like boring for a lot of people. Unfortunately, I can't he's already well established. Stuff. He's already well yeah. established. It's so much more difficult when you're starting off really to capture so attention hard. of people who like, don't even know who you are, but dude, seriously, I'm not exaggerating at all. I think you're doing a fantastic job with it. Like I used to consume a ton of YouTube educational stuff. I literally don't anymore because I find it boring to sit down and watch a 15, 20 minute video, but yours are really fun, man. Cause it's like, it's, it's education, but it's very entertaining. So it's like, you get a good I laugh out of it. it. I think you're doing a great job with it. And thanks man. Well, like mark my words on this podcast episode. I think ne through the course of next 12 months, it'll probably grow a crazy amount. I hope so. Yeah. And then everybody will come to this channel after they uh, look me up. Come, yeah. Come exactly. subscribe here. Dude, so we are going to take somewhat of a deep dive on TRT, but before we do so, I'd love if you share some of your educational background and what you do professionally as well, so people know that you are a credible source of information and not just some random dude I've I pulled out of my DMs to talk about TRT. <laughs> yeah, well, I might be, I, I kind of am just a random dude in a way too, because my education actually has, you know, almost like no carryover into TRT and things like that. Because by training, I'm a foot and ankle surgeon. So, you know, I, I was just a bro at heart, really. Um, when I graduated high school, I, I was not a bro yet. I was a, like a skate punk, kind of just degenerate and went a few years that way before um, I actually developed a really strong eating disorder and nutrition is kind of what got me into all of this. Cause I, I had a really bad eating disorder, uh, anorexia, which then turned into like bulimia. And then I just started going down the wrong path with like drugs and partying, nothing too hard, but just not doing anything, you know, great for society essentially. And then there was just one day it hit me like, you know, I'm not doing anything with my life. And I think I should basically. And, you know, I, I think that I can change some things and that started by getting a gym membership. But even in my degenerate years, my, my personality is always that of like, if I start something, I'm going to do 110%. So like when mm -hmm. I got the gym membership, I also shaved off my long hair. I bought a whole new wardrobe. I just completely changed overnight. And that also entailed like, if I'm going to do this gym thing, I'm going to do it right. So I started diving yeah. into textbooks and forums and everything. And I got super into science and that just kept accelerating. Like, I'm going to be a personal trainer. Oh, I'm going to go be like an x-ray tech. I'm going to be a nurse. And then I just kept going up. And then eventually, you know, I was like, you know what, F this. I'm going to go all the way and become a doctor. So I went to school a little bit later, started at a community college and went to undergrad and then, you know, went and got my medical training residency and everything. Um, but I really wanted to work with athletes because that's kind of what got me in. So, you know, I went down the podiatry, the foot and ankle route, working hopefully with athletes. But I quickly found that 
we actually weren't working with much athletes. Maybe 5% is like trauma and, and sports med. And the other 95 was a lot of diabetic wound care and limb salvage mm. and limb reconstruction due to diabetes. And that sucked because here, I, you know, I'm coming in with this passion for fitness and human optimization, and then I'm doing the exact opposite. You know, I would have guys who would come in uh, diagnosed with pre-diabetes and I'd have a conversation with them like, hey, look, you can stop this. You can reverse this. Let's, you know, let's do X, Y, Z. And they wouldn't. And then they'd come in with a diagnosis of diabetes. And then I'd be like, okay, checking their feet. Nothing yet, but you got to do something about this. You can still reverse this. They come back six months later. They've got a wound. Six months later, we're yeah. cutting off a toe. Six months later, a foot, a leg. And then after you cut off a leg within five years, 50% of those people are going to die. So it's like, it was so depressing for me. Um, along that journey though, also when I was into bodybuilding again, I do everything 110%. I got really into steroids and, you know, uh, performance enhancing drugs because I wasn't just going to work out. I was going to be the best person at ever working out. And, yeah. you know, I also had the body dysmorphia and all yeah. of that, that, you know, the previous eating disorder was there too. And so now it wasn't about restricting my calories and being as small as possible. Now that eating disorder switched into let me be the biggest thing possible and I need drugs to do so. So I got really into the underground world of performance enhancing drugs. And you now we were just talking about Derek a minute ago, like, you know, people like that. Uh, he was just recently on Peter Atia's podcast. And I saw so many like even MDs on there saying, I'm an endocrinologist and this guy knows hormones better than I do. And it's true. Like, you know, the hormone space really isn't very well elucidated in medical, like uh, in medical mm -hmm. schooling, rather, you know, it's very, it's this very niche group, very esoteric. And honestly, a lot of the bodybuilders and, you know, these biohackers and things online, honestly, understand this stuff a lot more than your standard MD or DO endocrinologist, because they're dealing more with like, you know, hypothyroidism, diabetes, they're not really dealing with testosterone much. And they don't mm -hmm. dive into the literature as much as nerds like myself and Derek did. So Derek actually came to me and was like, hey, I know you're really into this space like I am. And you've got all this medical training. Do you want to like join me and, you know, work at this, this Merrick place and do all this, you know, TRT and stuff, which was great. So I was able to merge my two worlds because I wanted to definitely do more of that preventative or even taking a healthy guy like yourself and making them better rather than we'll wait until you're so far gone that we can start to treat it because that's the way the medical community is right now, unfortunately. Yeah, that's a great story, man. I didn't know that about your past. I didn't know you had an eating disorder prior. And I'm happy that you shared yeah. that because I feel like eating disorders are spoken about mainly in female populations, right? And perhaps yeah. for whatever reasons, men don't talk about things as much. Um, yeah. I know I'm going a little bit off topic here, but what were some of the things that helped you um, improve your relationship with food? Yeah, that was a tough, long road. Like I never did any therapy. I never met with a dietitian. My wife now is an eating disorder specific dietitian. And I wish I would have had somebody like her. I mean, I just kind of got through it myself. Um, it was, uh, it was weird. So I don't even know really how it started. I think just like, and actually early on, early on, um, probably even when I was like five, I remember being concerned about my hair and stuff. And like, I had a little like pocket comb and I would comb my hair like in kindergarten, like who's doing that? I was super yeah. concerned about the way that I looked all the time. Um, and then I kind of had a mixed family. Like I, my parents got divorced and I got a brother and sister when I was around six. And I remember my brother and sister were very lean and I kind of was a little chubby, not even really, but mm. you know, brothers being brothers, I definitely remember this time when he grabbed my stomach and was like, called me mm. chubby or something. 
And it was like that moment that I'm like, man, he's so cool and he's really lean and you can see his stomach muscles. I didn't even know what they were called or anything, you know, but like, I don't yeah. have that. And I always felt kind of less than from, from like yeah. starting there. So like, even in high school, I remember I would wake up early before my family and sneak out and run. I would do crunches every single night. Like I always wanted to have abs, even though I was a skateboarder who hated jocks and anything musculature, I still was like sneaking around, like yeah. doing crunches and running. Yeah. 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 Um, so it just was this obsessive thing that just kept perpetually getting worse and worse and worse until like, you know, after high school, then suddenly I'm like eating or like I would binge because I'd be so restrictive that like if my family left the house, all of a sudden I'm eating everything and the, the crazy concoctions of things you make when you have like this bulimia binge disorder is insane. And I would just like feel such a weird feeling because i honestly felt like i was outside of my body and be like mm. stop dude stop stop that's enough and i couldn't and then i'd be like okay i gotta go yeah. throw this up um what helped me i think was finally realizing like when i started fitness like hey i need those calories to grow and i'm never going to mm. be that big muscular person if i don't have those calories and i came to terms with the fact that i could get fat I got really obsessed with people like, you know, Lee Priest, who would get super fat in the off season. Yeah. And, and, you know, it probably wasn't the healthiest, but it worked for me. I would yeah. go, okay, those guys get fat and they're able to get leaner. So that was like, yeah. you know, my little, my little safety net. I would be like, I will get leaner in the future. So I didn't do it through any normal means, but it was just really learning that like calories were essential for the performance that I needed and the growth aspect. So that's how I looked out. Now, if I were to talk to Victoria, my, my wife, she would say that would be a terrible thing that you know no one should go down that route of like oh we're gonna yeah. focus on a new physique you know they should yeah. really work with a dietitian and uh like an md who specializes in eating disorders i think yeah which i totally agree with but i i mean i'm a huge proponent of fitness being a gateway to overall health right and i feel like yeah. most of us especially men who started in fitness perhaps when they were young teenagers or like 18 19 years old it's always because of extraneous variables like you, you just yeah. want to look good but i don't think there's anything wrong with starting for that reason because it it slowly becomes into something else and like really does positively impact your life in every aspect so it's 100%. cool to hear that fitness was pretty much it sounds like the main thing that helped you transition away from that it really was. I mean, there was points like this is what I mean. It would be great to get more help because there was points that I would like relapse in that fitness journey, yeah. for example, you know, like even when I got into CrossFit and I thought like, oh, cool, I'm just void of all image because this CrossFit gym doesn't have mirrors and we don't talk about the way that we look. And I was like, this is really what I need. And I felt like that was really therapeutic for me until there was a point when like I had to pull back on the CrossFit and then I started seeing my abs blur a little bit and I mm. like relapsed. I remember even being much, you know, I'm probably like five years out of that initial eating disorder and I'm finding myself like causing myself to throw up again, you know? And that's been a while now because at this point I really do feel comfortable with food finally. But yeah. there was points when I did have relapses throughout my fitness journey. Yeah. It's tough, man, because I feel like, triggers can be everywhere right and different people are obviously triggered differently by different things like i had a similar experience uh family wise where like not that i i had a new brother and sister or anything like that but just my my one at home environment wasn't good like my parents were divorced mm -hmm. and just like always had issues at home but like my family was very focused on like body image and like hispanic families are like this they're just like oh you're a little bit you you're never okay like you're either too fat or too skinny like that's yeah. always the messaging right like if I was a little bit heavier, like, oh, my mom would be like, oh, you're fat, you know? And like literally <laughs> just like that. So would my entire family. And they would just like roast the hell out of you. 
And then if I lost some weight, which I often would like just by exercising a ton and literally not eating a lot and like, Oh, now you're too skinny. It's like, Holy shit, man. Like you can't win here. Right. It's exactly. It's really damaging. That's one of the reasons why I made, I don't know if you saw the video that I posted this morning talking about, uh, what's his name? Bobby, the Flav City guy. And I know he's not doing this with bad intention, but he made a video with him and his daughter at the store. And he's like, this product has X chemical. I forgot what it was, uh, or natural flavors or something like that. Is this Bobby approved? And the, the daughter was like, no, it's not Bobby approved. And it was supposed to be like a cute video, whatever, but it's damaging. Like, I know, right. It's like, first off, there's nothing wrong. He was pointing at like cliff bars or something like that, like cliff yeah. bars of all things. And then it's just like, you, you don't know how kids interpret those things or what kind of effects it has long-term. Um, and it's tough because, I'm sure he's a good dad and he didn't mean any ill will with that. Right. Uh, but it is, it is important, man, especially because kids are so impressionable. That's one of the things I think with my son, it's like, it's tough because I have a background in nutrition and I know how I would want him to eat, but I don't want to put that pressure on him. You know, like, Oh no, you I have know. to eat this because of protein and your micronutrients and blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's a fucking kid. But man. <laughs> you also don't want him to go to the other extreme. The to other be extreme, like, yeah. Oh, McDonald's is normalized and it's okay yeah. to drink soda and eat candy. And you don't know, like, how do you, yeah. how do you well, do there's it? some really great resources, man. There's a couple of people that I follow who talk about nutrition specifically for kids and how parents should talk to kids and, yeah. and talking about how, like the whole idea is not saying that certain foods are bad for us or inherently dangerous or anything like that, but like emphasize the importance of healthy foods. And these are good for us and you should eat, foods of different colors because they have different health effects. Right. And like mm -hmm. maybe pushing the positive side a little bit more and, and like eating as a family and having them see how you eat and interact and all that good stuff. Anyways, I'll, I'll let you know if I figure it out in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. It's tough, man. It's that stuff's really hard. Yeah. There's so much. So thankfully, going on. Uh, our baby's only one year old now. Um, Everybody listening, I promise you we're about to talk about TRT, but uh, our baby's 14 months old and we just took him on a cruise and he was eating, um, I gave him lobster, I gave him smoked salmon, I gave him escargot and he was just like eating all of it, loved it. And I was like, hell yes, I hope this doesn't <laughs> nice. change. But it was like a proud dad moment. I'm like, all right, he's not that picky of an eater. And then I found out that they become pickier later in life. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, it's um, crazy. There's like total other eating disorders, like something yeah. called ARFID, which I didn't know about until Victoria, you know, got into this where they're extremely picky eaters. That's like an eating disorder in and of itself. It's crazy. Yeah, totally. Never anyway, know what you'll run into. Let's, uh, let's talk about TRT because it's a hot topic, right? And I think, yeah. um, well, I guess TRT has been a hot topic forever because people care about testosterone. People want to build muscle. People want to feel good. And there's a lot of great information, a lot of shitty information. There are right ways of doing things. There are incorrect ways of doing things. People don't even know if perhaps they should be looking into TRT. So let's just start off by discussing what is TRT and what's the difference between something like TRT and then like blasting steroids. Yeah, I think that's the biggest differentiation, the most important differentiation. So TRT, as the name implies, testosterone replacement therapy. Like we're literally trying to simply replace, it should say like testosterone replacement of physiological levels of testosterone, you know, is what it is because these days TRT has just become synonymous with steroid use. And it yeah. kind of sucks because there's a lot of people who now for like financial gain are taking, are exploiting that, you know, so many people advertise to everybody that they need TRT because they tell them that if they're going to be on TRT, then suddenly they're going to look like their favorite influencer, essentially, you know, <laughs> and that's not the case because all it is doing is taking you from 
from a low level, hopefully actually clinically low and giving you normal physiologic. So you should have the exact same ability to have the gains that any other natural would, you know, you're essentially just a, a natural, you're making yourself a natty person is what it should be at the end of the day. Um, so, you know, taking like a 500 or a 600 and then turning that into 1500, if you didn't have the physiologic capability to produce 1500, that's not TRT. That is now like actual, I would say steroid use. So that's yeah. a, a and big, really quickly to interject there. Sorry, because people listening probably don't know what you're talking about by 500 or 600, right? You mind clearing up a little bit on there? Yeah. So this is also a really big point is what are, what is physiologic normal? And I'm talking nanograms per deciliter. That's pretty common us if other countries have other ones, yeah. but nanograms per deciliter. And the, the hard part here is that in the U S we have this extremely wide range from like 200 nanograms per deciliter all the way up to mid nine hundreds. And yeah. it, you know, even as a lay person, you can realize like recognize like that's a massive difference and 200 probably feels a lot different than 900. The unfortunate part definitely in our like in our current medical system is that if you're at like 201 and your endocrinologist sees that they're going to say you're within normal range like your symptoms are made up here's an antidepressant yeah. and that happens a lot unfortunately or you know go get some sleep go exercise or you know just yeah. dismiss them which those are good good uh, advices as well but you know it, there may be actually some physiologic going on here so yeah those are the ranges what we kind of like in the space have determined where most guys feel optimal or their best is probably somewhere around 600 nanograms per deciliter and you kind of get to that point by looking at the overwhelming majority of like young, healthy individuals, like your, your top optimized individual, like yourself, Joe, you probably, I would say are in that above 500 because you're doing everything right. I would imagine if we tested, you know, you'd probably be like that. Most guys who feel pretty good, who perform pretty good, have decent libido, good mood, energy levels, and they're natural are usually somewhere above 500. So okay. then the question, you know, becomes like, well, if you have a 300, even though your endocrinologist says that that's normal, like, is it and should treat it? And there's some people in the space like myself who'd say, yeah, maybe. Yeah. And so what would be, what would be some of the symptoms that people would look for? Right. So, so here, let's talk about some things. Let's talk about uh, objective biomarkers, which we know that total testosterone is not the only marker, right? Mm -hmm. We should perhaps be looking at some other things like, uh, free testosterone, for example. And we could talk a little bit about the physiology there, like what are the different mechanisms as to why is there a difference between free testosterone, and total testosterone, what even is right. the difference, some sex hormone binding globulin stuff. And then we can talk about some um, actual outcomes, like what are some side effects, or I should say symptoms of perhaps low T that people should look into. Yeah. So on the objective markers, like you're saying, so the objective, that's like, you know, actual data, like lab work. Um, so the, what I was just spewing off about earlier, the total was the total, the amount that your body puts out in total. Now, hormones need carrier proteins to get around the body. And that's usually like you alluded to sex hormone binding globulin is one of them. Albumin is another one of them. So those two make up the vast majority of binding up our sex hormones like testosterone, DHT, estradiol, things like that. Um, so when you measure, you also should measure your free testosterone, which tells you the amount that is not bound. And then there is this hypothesis of like the, the free hormone hypothesis that, you know, it's actually that that governs like how a man feels and performs, et cetera. I personally kind of push back against that because I mean, I think that the way that I look at it again, just if I was looking at it from like a layman's perspective, it just makes sense that 
Like why would our body make 700 nanograms per deciliter and only use 20 of that? That would be the most inefficient system that our body has. And you know, as a, you know, a scientist that the body usually doesn't do things to excess and excessively. It's very, very coordinated and, and yeah. it knows what it's doing. So I think that, you know, people like these TRT clinics have really clung to this idea of free testosterone. And it's mm -hmm. a way that they can tell a guy who has a 700, but has a free of 10 that they're mm -hmm. suboptimal and actually require testosterone. And that's not the case always. It's a very nuanced thing. And it really requires a lot of other metrics to look into. But there's, you know, also, I should say that the guys who have the highest levels of SHBG, sex hormone binding globulin, are usually the healthiest because SHBG mm. is actually a good marker of metabolic health. The healthier you are, the higher your SHBG is because things like insulin, excess insulin production, and excess inflammation suppress SHBG. So we see low SHBG in type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome. So mm. Does it make sense that SHBG should be low in a healthy individual? Probably not. It's correlated with better health outcomes. Mm -hmm. So I just always question that. Um, it was all based off like one study where they they kind of took uh, SHBG with hormones attached to it, put it next to a target tissue, and it wasn't easily like let go of. But mm. that study was like redone using prostate tissue, and the SHBG jumps right over because prostate tissue is, has a high affinity for that testosterone, or vice versa. So, in my opinion, I'm like, does SHBG really matter that much? All the way that I see it is like it's a bus, and it's taking your hormone to the target yeah. tissue. It will release it and let it go. Um, you will find sometimes, though, if it's like super suppressed, like a guy's a very low free, then maybe they're not feeling as good. And that's probably due to neurosteroid cascades downstream from testosterone. And there may be some validity to that. But like if you're if you're saying like, oh, I've got a nine free testosterone, that's why I'm not making gains. Probably not. You know, I, I, I would push back against that personally. Yeah. So I want to ask you a couple of questions here. So <laughs> I think the the hypothesis that you presented makes sense, right? Because if you take any sort of biochemistry and we're getting into some complicated stuff here that everybody might not understand, but essentially hormones and most molecules really function through a particular receptor, right? And a receptor is just a protein. It's either on the surface of the cell or it can be inside the cell, but essentially the hormone itself doesn't do anything. It has to bind to the receptor to then signal a certain outcome, right? And receptors can have, or I will say this, different molecules can have different affinities to other molecules, right? Mm -hmm. And if a particular molecule is bound to something, but comes in contact with something else that has a higher affinity to it, essentially it, it has a stronger uh, ability to bind to it, then it's likely that it will unbind from the one thing and then bind to the other thing. Um, so a couple questions here that Again, you might know the answer to these or might not. I definitely don't have any idea of the answer to these. Do we know that the affinity to the uh, androgen receptor is higher than the affinity to sex binding hormone globulin, sex hormone binding globulin? And do we have data to show that free testosterone is like the most active form of testosterone or is that not really clear? So the, the affinity question, I'm not sure of that's actually, you know, I don't know why I've never looked into that, but that would be interesting to see. And I think that's going to depend on tissue again, specific because, yeah. you know, I would say that the affinity for the androgen receptor is probably higher. 
and that when they, it comes in contact with SHBG bounded testosterone, you know, there's an exchange and it goes towards that. Um, but there's some tissues that have a very low amount of androgen receptors. And to Joey's point, mm -hmm. like the receptor for testosterone is called the androgen receptor. So some tissues like prostate, for example, a ton of androgen receptors. And then there's other tissues in the body that maybe don't have as much, uh, you know, androgen receptors. So it's less likely that that hormone will leave then. Um, it definitely is the most active because that's the hormone. I mean, when free testosterone is free and not bound, that's when it can be aromatized into estradiol or 5-alpha reduced into DHT. And then from both of those through other metabolic pathways turn into other metabolites like neurosteroids. So that's mm. where it definitely is the most active because when it's bound, it can't be turned into anything else. It can't inter interact with the androgen receptor, et cetera. You know? Okay, cool. Yeah. And is there, is there, I know correlation doesn't mean causation, but is there a stronger correlation between concentrations of free testosterone versus total testosterone and symptoms of hypogonadism? Yeah, the symptoms, I think it, it does play a role. And again, it's not everybody. And this is where the stuff gets super nuanced and really tricky. Um, I personally don't even like thinking about levels whatsoever. And I wish that we would just kind of get away from ranges. Okay. But it's all, it's all so hard. And this is why, though, you know, I've met, I've met professional athletes, uh, for example, one who's allowed me to talk about this. I met with Jason Kalipa and looked at his labs. And I personally think that he's actually natural. And this guy won the CrossFit Games. Um, you know, he could be lying for sure. Everybody could be. But like he, he really came off like he had no idea what any of this stuff was. He was really, really interested, kind of baffled by the whole like, steroid yeah. thing. His testosterone, when I saw him, was like upper 300s. That in our community, most guys would say really low. And I'm talking to yeah. him. He's like, dude, I don't think I could have a stronger libido. I think my wife would kick me out of the house. And like you look at him, the dude's winning the CrossFit games. He's just a beast. Looks great. Yeah, yeah, looks great. And so that 300 works really well for him. So there's like interesting studies out there that show that it's probably not the total level of testosterone. It's more probably the androgen receptor concentration. Yeah. yeah. So if you have more androgen receptors and they have a better sensitivity to the testosterone, you're probably going to have a more response. So meaning a 200 might have a robust response if you just have all this expression of androgen receptors, yeah. or you could have a 2000 testosterone and few androgen receptors and not be making any gains and feel lousy. Unfortunately, we cannot test androgen receptors unless you're doing like muscle biopsies and that's yeah. just not practical. So you have to go based off symptoms. So if I see a guy and he comes in and he's like, I feel great. And he's got a 300. No way. Like, let's not do anything about it. You feel awesome. Yeah. Conversely, if you meet a guy who's got like a 600, which you would think should be optimal. And they're like, I can't get it up. I, you know, I have terrible libido. I'm not making gains. I'm not motivated. Maybe they would benefit from some testosterone. The problem though, is that those th symptoms I just listed off could be 15 million other things too. Yeah. You know, like, it's so hard to tease out. So it takes a lot of work. And unfortunately, the way that a lot of these clinics are set up these days, they're not doing that deep dive. It's like, do you have low libido? Are you tired at the end of the day? You're a yeah. candidate, you know? And yeah. It's, well, it's hard. Are you tired of spending countless hours grocery shopping, cooking, and preparing your meals? I get it. Time is precious. And that's where Icon Meals comes into play. I've partnered with Icon Meals to bring you delicious, macro-friendly and high-protein meals that will make it easier than ever for you to achieve your fitness goals. I understand that you may have hesitations over the cost of a meal prep service compared to cooking food at home. But let's face it, how often do you spend more money eating out because you didn't have time to prepare your food at home anyways? With Icon Meals, you not only save time, 
but you invest in your health. These meals are carefully crafted to be healthier and more in line with your fitness goals than most of the food that you eat out anyways. So why wait? Visit iconmeals.com and explore their wide array of mouth-watering meals. And as a special bonus for listening to this podcast, use code JOSEPH10 at checkout for a special discount off of your order. By the way, you can find all of the necessary links in the description of this podcast. Don't let time be a barrier to your success. Choose Icon Meals and fuel your journey towards a healthier, fitter you. It's tough because so many of these symptoms are influenced by other variables too, right? Like, yeah. dude, over the past year, sleep has been shitty because we have a baby mm -hmm. and energy levels are, are often low. Oftentimes, I don't want to do anything after work besides just chill and like lay on, a, on the couch, which is not like me. Sometimes my workouts, I don't dread my workouts. I enjoy the gym, but it's just like, I'm just going through the movements for the purpose of going through the movement. I'm like, man, is something wrong with me? And then I start to think about it. And it's like, no, like pretty stressed with work because I got a lot going on and I'm not sleeping that well, at least right. not compared to how I used to. And it's like, those things are probably more of contributing factors and everything's related to right? Like poor sleep will influence your testosterone levels. Yeah. So it's like, it, it is very complicated, but I guess practically, what are some symptoms that people can look for? And let's talk about it in a really practical way, right? Because like, like feeling tired is not just due to testosterone, Correct. but if you're feeling tired and X, Y, Z in combination, maybe you should look into TRT. Let's talk about those right. things. Yeah. So those are really hard. And I, you got to try to work with a practitioner that can really tease those things out. Like for example, libido one, I really think libido is a great metric to look at when it comes to hormones. But I think that's super complex as well and, and multifactorial yeah. for sure. And so I'll kind of try to give guys like a little mini thought experiment. Like, let's say you're on vacation, just you and your wife, kids are taken care of, all bills are paid, you got a bonus, everything's going perfect in your life. And she walks in, you know, you're on vacation, you're in the hotel bed, she walks in in laundry and wants it, and you can't even be bothered. You're like, Ugh, and you just feel like asexual. Maybe you actually have physiologic low yeah. libido due to testosterone. If conversely, you work, you're working like 16 hour days and you're stressed and you come home and you're trying to get the kids to bed and you just zonk out at the end of the night when she's trying to get some, you're tired because you're just a modern man, you know, and you're working yeah, really yeah. hard taking care of your family. So you got to kind of do that. And like you said, to your point, like sleep and energy levels is big. If you're getting adequate sleep, you're getting adequate nutrition, adequate um, hydration, adequate sunlight adequate yeah. you know, relationships and everything. If everything seems normal and you're still kind of tired and, and drained and you have low energy, low affect, then maybe there is something wrong, but you really have to do like personally take a look. And, and unfortunately people want the quick answer and it's, you know, everybody will tell you I'm doing everything perfect. Everyone will say that. And you'd be like, really, you know, and it's yeah. nice because labs don't really lie. I often joke and say that it's kind of like Maury when I'm looking at labs, you know, when he would say like, well, the lab results are in or the, you know, the lie detector is and, and you're not, you know, you're lying basically. Cause uh, you know, people be like, oh, I'm super dialed in. And I look and they're fasting insulin sky high and they've got you know, pre-diabetes and their lipids are, and I'm like, dude, I don't think you're as dialed in as you think we need to go back and fix some of that stuff. Optimize so, health first. Yeah. Yeah. So, but main symptoms, libido, erection quality is a big one too. So if, you know, suddenly you can't get, you know, very hard or you're losing your erection really quickly, things like that, the energy levels, motivation is a big one for sure. Um, you know, I think like Huberman made this, the same super popular that testosterone basically makes work feel good. Well, it's dopamine that does, but the testosterone mm -hmm. and dopamine are closely linked. So, you know, if you're just feeling 
no zest for life, then potentially it's worth looking into. I wouldn't say that you necessarily need it, but it's worth at least looking into and investigating. Yeah. So would you say perhaps a strong indicator could be if there have been recent changes, maybe not, let's not use the word recent, but if there have been changes in libido, mood, energy, et cetera, but lifestyle hasn't necessarily changed much at all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. And that then, but too, like you, like maybe that lifestyle is just now catching up with you and it was never optimal to begin with too. Right. So like, it, <laughs> so, so nuanced for sure. You got to do a lot of deep dive and, and it's really, um, it's just like haphazard to just jump on TRT when you've got some of those symptoms without doing a thorough deep dive on every aspect of life, even outside of lab work. Yeah. And so how would you determine, Adam, if somebody, and I, I know it's nuanced, but I want to hear this nuance. If like somebody comes to you and like, how would you determine that somebody needs TRT if they have normal testosterone levels, not even on the lower end of normal, like let's say average four or 500 or so? Yeah. I mean, I, like we just talked about, go through all of those like prior criteria, like, are you sleeping enough, everything. And sometimes I can tell people are super dialed in and then you can see yeah. even in their labs, you know, they've got like a fasted insulin below five, their A1C is beautiful. Their lipids are good. Their inflammation's yeah. low. You can just tell they're doing everything right. And a lot of the, it's funny because the guys who actually need it are usually the ones that push back the hardest against it. Like, no, I don't think so. I, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm like, dude, I really think you benefit, but it's those guys who are doing everything right. And they're super disciplined. And that's why they're getting up every morning and still going to the gym. They're still doing everything right. Despite it being really hard and a lot of resistance. And that's what they're saying is basically like my whole life. I've loved getting up and going to the gym. Suddenly last year, you know, like middle of the year, I just lost all zest for it. I keep going and it sucks. And my joints are really achy now. And, mm. you know, I'm, I'm my libido, my, my love life is kind of taking a hit and still everything is taken care of. Like that's when it's like, okay, you could probably benefit from this. And, you know, some of those older guys, uh, I think like the SHBG is really important there too. Um, because with those guys, I think like liver starts to metabolize things a little bit slower. You may see like kind of a falsely elevated testosterone on labs, mm. even though what they're feeling is actually a little bit lower. So, yeah, there's a lot that goes into that for sure. And what's kind of like the average age that that people should even perhaps start to consider this? Because, again, you hear about a ton of 20-year-olds say, I feel these symptoms. Do I need TRT? Um, are there situations in where younger men do need TRT? Is that pretty much non-existent? Let's talk about no. that. No. Yeah. These days, I think it actually exists. And it's kind of interesting. Like, you know... I think I changed my stance on a lot of things over the past few years. And, you know, previously had you asked me like, did younger guys need TRT? I'd say absolutely not. That's BS. Um, I don't know why, but it does seem like a lot of younger guys are having issues at a lot younger ages than previously. And maybe it is related to some of these like endocrine disruptors, plastics. Mm -hmm. I don't know for sure, but it's certainly a possibility where before yeah. I would have said that's complete pseudoscience BS, yeah. you know, not true. Uh, these days, I think maybe it is true. Maybe it's because their lifestyle is, you know, causing a suppression. So there is a lot of obese younger guys these days yeah. with a lot of systemic inflammation and all of this is suppressing testosterone output. But I think, you know, we used to say, like, as long as lifestyle is all dialed in, there should be no reason to have low testosterone. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore, because I do see a lot of younger, healthy guys who are kind of doing everything right. And I can tell. And, you know, I work with them for months leading up to wherever we decide to do testosterone. And 
and they do have low levels despite all that. Yeah. And then unfortunately, you know, they've been put on a gamut of antidepressants and things that usually only make stuff worse. And it's kind of sad for younger guys these days, you yeah. know, they're coming up and I, I wish I knew, I wish I could directly say like, yes, it is the, the plastics. It is these, these yeah. endocrine disruptors. I can't say that for sure, yeah. but it's a valid hypothesis, I think. Yeah, I've I've heard in-depth discussions on that topic. And again, I personally haven't taken a deep dive on the literature, but from a hypothetical standpoint, it makes sense. And mechanistically, mm -hmm. it makes sense too. And I think there's some correlational data to suggest that was like phthalates in particular found in like most plastics uh, can disrupt testosterone production. I think there's some evidence showing that like uh, mothers who consumed higher amounts of phthalates uh, their male children, children in particular, have lower testosterone levels. Now, yeah. I've only heard scientists talk about this. I haven't actually read the research myself. But I mean, it makes sense just because our environment does impact every single aspect of our physiology, right? Now, the question that I always have is like, to what degree, right? Because we can argue that we can make a strong argument that most things influence most things to a certain degree. Right. And it's just like, man, people blame like this one thing and yes, maybe it's playing a role, but like all these other things, like being right. significantly overweight, physically inactive, not having uh, a strong, like social circle. That that's so important, man. Like having yeah. friends that you enjoy being with, having family that you enjoy being with. I think that's one thing that people really struggled with during COVID in particular isolation, right? Like, I think mm -hmm. it's like rates of depression went through the roof and loneliness itself is like a huge indicator of health and mortality. And it's like, you got to take care of all of those things first to then be able yeah. to determine whether something's going on. And I guess you can use medication as a patch, right? But the underlying issues are still there. Right. And sometimes like, so where, what I, I would prefer somebody personally, like if it were my loved one, like it would make sense to me personally, like, let's try a bioidentical hormone before we try some synthetic neuro, uh, neuro, um, transmitter, like, you know, mag, uh, mechanistic that we can't even measure, you know? So like an SSRI, like we don't know that their problem is coming from low serotonin. We literally cannot measure that. We can, however, measure testosterone, but like if you bring up testosterone to your doctor, then no, like there's something wrong with you. You're kind of shunned. You're looked at as either a pseudoscientist or just a guy who's trying to get, you know, big. But yeah. conversely, that like if you say, if you even hint at being like, I'm kind of depressed, SSRI, yeah. like it's giving away like candy these days. And that's kind of crazy to me. It's kind of sad. And I, I don't it like to sad. be the conspiracy theorist, but it's so weird that like we'll just, you know, peddle this to anybody who wants it. But when it comes to like a bioidentical hormone, that's a no-no. It's kind of weird. Yeah, it is sad, man, how quickly some things are prescribed, right? For whatever reason, um, this actually hits home a little bit. Like uh, one of the things when, so after pregnancy, after my wife gave birth, we were in the hospital for 10 days because my wife was having really bad high blood pressure issues. And keep in mind, she's really healthy. She's young. She works out, never had any issues with uh, blood pressure or health in general. Anyways, she had really bad white coat syndrome because she knew that her blood pressure was what was keeping us from going home. Mm -hmm. And so anytime they came in to take her blood pressure, her heart rate would go through the roof. Her blood pressure would skyrocket. And of course, they would use that measurement to determine whether or not she was okay to go home. And they kept up in her dose of different medications, et cetera, whatever. Eventually, we went home. Um, and so she was pretty anxious about that for a while. And then it subsided. And then that anxiety 
literally just resurfaced out of nowhere um, where she was feeling really anxious about certain things. And I think that's fairly normal with a new mother, but then she was taking her blood pressure because we had a cuff and it was making her nervous and it was going up again and it was uh, kind of spiraling in the wrong direction. I'm like, oh, this is not good. And so I guess men also think more logically. I'm just like, don't worry about it. It doesn't mean anything, right? Which obviously didn't help at all. And so she, she scheduled a meeting with her physician and obviously I was super supportive of it. But the one thing I, I was like, listen, if they just prescribe some medication, like it might not be necessary. And it's scary. Like if they just prescribe something for the sake of prescribing something to address your symptoms, which yeah. hopefully is not the case, but often does happen. Right. Mm -hmm. Thankfully they didn't prescribe anything and they told her she was fine and just waited out and perfectly fine. But man, like, yeah, I, I know people personally who just like have been dealing with some stuff. They go to the doctor and they're prescribed an antidepressant and some of them perhaps need it. Some of them perhaps benefit from it, but others definitely don't. It's just like so readily prescribed. Yeah. And like in your wife's point, that's like a perfect example. Like that is like, it was likely hormonally driven. I would, I would guess, um, yeah. because like after a pregnancy levels of progesterone drop significantly, and then progesterone usually converts into allopregnenolone, which has a strong impact on GABA. So that would normally calm her, you know, leading to more anxiety, depression, things like mm -hmm. that. So like we can actually treat postpartum depression with like allopregnenolone, the metabolite mm -hmm. of progesterone, and women usually feel significantly better. But instead, most of the time, the go-to would be antidepressants. And it's just so weird to me that we always <laughs> pick those as go-tos rather than endogenous hormones. Like endogenous yeah. hormones are super stigmatized. It just seems weird to me because, I mean, it's like what our body produces, you know. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. it's as silly as like saying like, you know, glucose is bad. It's because like, yeah, know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. things are going to get converted into glucose endogenously <laughs> anyways. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like it's kind of crazy, but we just stigmatize things. Yeah. that the body produces naturally. It's weird. Yeah. So TRT, I know there's a couple of different modalities and therapies, right? Different forms of testosterone. Are there differences between them? And if somebody is considering TRT, are there some things that they should consider with some type of medication versus others? Yeah, significant uh, differences for sure. Um, so there's uh, a lot of different routes of administration. So we have everything from like, you could do a nasal inhalant to like surgically inserting a pellet to injection to cream. I think that's probably all of them for now. Oh, there's oral forms as well. So mm -hmm. um, there's a lot, but this is another part where I think like the endocrinology societies have this like really wrong right now. Like if you were to, I just did this last night, I looked in Hippocrates, which is kind of what we look at for prescribing medications, the gold standard. Um, and it says like for men, testosterone replacement, like one injection every two to four weeks, which is just crazy. Because mm -hmm. if you think about how the body naturally produces testosterone, it's literally every single day, the testes yeah. produce a little bit of testosterone in the morning and your levels pretty much kind of look like this. Like if you were to see a men's testosterone, like they kind of spike and drop, spike and drop, but they stay within yeah. like, you know, pretty stable where the way that we treat it oftentimes is a large bolus. And then we just let that fall down until you need it again. Then you get another large bolus. And that leads to a host of issues. And usually they'll immediately put you on an aromatase inhibitor. So that's something mm -hmm. that blocks the conversion of testosterone to estrogen through the enzyme aromatase. So it inhibits that aromatase enzyme. So they always, always put guys on that. And it's just kind of crazy because like estrogen is one of the big benefits of having higher testosterone. Estrogen in men is neuroprotective. So it's good for our brain. It's good for our heart. It's good for our libido. Uh, there's so many benefits to it. And the normal way of injecting is like once every two weeks and you take an aromatase inhibitor. 
Well, if you just increase the frequency to these micro injections or like micro applications, either daily or every other day, usually those levels mimic a lot more of that normal fluctuation, just kind of daily. You have less aromatization because you're not getting these massive spikes in free testosterone that can then be aromatized. So there's usually no need for an aromatase inhibitor. I mean, these are cancer, female cancer drugs, usually that guys are just going on and then they're dealing with a whole new host of issues of having low estrogen. So, and this is just standard of care, honestly. And that's why there is a lot of pushback for sure. Like, you know, I love the scientific community. I love medicine, but in a lot of ways, they kind of are still, you know, blinded and they're, they're so hesitant to ever look at anything that isn't like, you know, doesn't have a randomized control trial to it. You know, it'll be like, nope, like, we we saw this in the 40s there was randomized control it was one injection every two weeks and that's fine yeah you talk to any guy who's been on one injection every two weeks versus every other day and it's night and day difference so i think the best route of administration is probably injection or cream cream is a little bit more tedious because it's a twice daily uh, application and then with cream like for yourself probably wouldn't be a great modality because you have a newborn it's on your skin even though it's usually in your groin it can still get on your hands and you could transfer it to them you could transfer it to your wife um, so injections usually the best. The pellets are kind of equally as bad as those spaced out injections because you're really reliant on how fast your body is going to break down and metabolize those pellets. And for everybody, that's different. So yeah, sometimes you yeah. get a massive spike really high. And you see some guys like their levels are coming back in the 3000s and then they drop all the way down yeah. to like, you know, low hundreds. They feel like crap before they get another one put in. Um, the nasal thing seems interesting, but I think it's a three, three time a day, like nasal inhalation. Mm-hmm. I, I can't see anybody, you know, sticking to that. So yeah. for now, gold standard, probably just injection. Hey guys, some of you may not know that I'm the scientific advisor for a supplement company called Outwork Nutrition. I help with the formulation of new products to help ensure that they're effective and backed by science. Unlike many other supplement companies out there, we don't rely on exaggerated claims or flashy marketing tactics. Instead, we let the science speak for itself. We take pride in formulating products that deliver real results, helping you achieve your fitness goals in a meaningful way. If you're in the market for supplements like protein powder, pre-workout, or recovery products, make sure to check us out at outworknutrition.com. And as a thank you for being an avid listener of this podcast, use code Joey for an exclusive discount at checkout. You can find the link to our website down in the description of this podcast episode. Remember, our goal is to empower you with science-backed supplements that truly make a difference. Choose Outwork Nutrition and elevate your fitness to new heights. What about oral tablets? So the oral, I'm I'm not super familiar with. I think it's undecanate is the, the one that's like FDA approved. Um, my concern it used to always be kind of like liver toxicity, but... I did look into it and it seemed like it was pretty safe on liver, but I think again, it leads to that same thing where you're getting a large bolus and it kind of teeters off. Um, It's also very expensive. So it's usually cost prohibitive for a lot of guys. Yeah. That's interesting because so so many people are definitely, um, not even, let's not even say afraid, but definitely want to avoid needles. Right. Yeah. And the idea of having an injection daily or even every other day seems like that's also a big ask, right? It's tough. Yeah. Uh, I think another thing we should like definitely bring up to those listening, like testosterone is a big commitment. And this is where some people might be thinking like, oh, well, if you need testosterone for a little bit, great. But that's not the case because 
again, going back to our bodies are highly efficient. And when you inject testosterone, our brain very quickly realizes like we're getting testosterone from somewhere. We don't need to make it anymore. So it shuts down shop, you know, lights off. It's not no longer making it on its own. Um, so that's twofold. One is like the testosterone in the brain through the hypothalamus and pituitary, the signaling stops. So your signaling hormones, luteinizing hormone and follicle signaling hormone just drop to zero. And then your testes stop producing testosterone. Um, they also stop producing sperm at that time. So you run the risk of infertility. So that's why it's like a really big thing that you should consider before ever going on. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I try to talk these young guys out of it because you're potentially looking at a lifelong commitment yeah. of possibly like daily to every other day injections for the rest of your life. Like, you know, think about, could I do this for 40 more years, 50 more years? Yeah. And am I fine with the chance of not having children? That's a big deal. Yeah. So it's not something to just hop on willy nilly. Yeah, it is a big deal. And what about people who come off testosterone with, I know there are some things is like post-cycle therapy that people use that mm -hmm. term to talk about different medications to help stimulate uh, testosterone production again. But let's say somebody just comes off it, just stops using it. Is there a period of time where your body will regain the capacity to, to produce testosterone? Yeah, I think the biggest determinant there is like, how long were you on? So if you were on for three months, probably a lot easier to recover than if you were on for mm -hmm. three to six years without any um, signaling to the testes. Usually, I think our, our signaling hormones kick on pretty quick. Um, so the the hypothalamus and like, you know, sends a signal to the pituitary and the pituitary isn't only responsible for luteinizing hormone and follicle signaling hormone, yeah. it produces a ton of other hormones. So it still produces those hormones, it just stops those other ones. So usually the pituitary is pretty quick to come back on because it's been being used that whole time. But the testes have basically become like this vestibule, like vestibule or, uh, organ that's just like sitting there unused. It atrophies, it shrinks up and it scars over. So it can have scar tissue and it can be really hard to get the testes to produce testosterone oh, wow. or sperm again. So, you know, like myself, I, like I said, I started using PEDs at a pretty young age. At this point, it's probably been a decade of being on some type of hormone without endogenous production. It would probably be very hard for me to get my testes to produce again because I'm sure that they've got a lot of scar tissue and are just kind of dormant. Um, so that yeah. kind of depends. But if you're, you've just been on for a few months and you come off without any other drugs, probably it'll be arduous process where your levels will probably be very low for a little while and then slowly climb back yeah. up. Um, so would you but yeah, say there's some drugs to take? Would you say infertility is a much bigger risk than long term? The infertility one is tricky because I think you know we all know bodybuilders who are on the stuff yeah. year round at massive doses yeah. and still have children, and yeah. then occasionally there's the sad story of a normal guy who needed TRT and is now infertile due to it, and it's mm. really hard to tell. Um, testosterone, it's probably not the it's not going to make you infertile for sure. Uh, we know that because we've tried to use it as a birth control and it's never been approved as such because it wasn't very effective. Guys still produce some amount of sperm. So it's possible to still be producing sperm uh, despite having like low LH and FSH and being okay. on. But it's such a, a crapshoot that I tell people like that's something that most people don't want to mess with. Yeah. Like, you know, that's a big part of your life, as you know, if you would have told if I would have told you a few years ago, like you could never have your son, you would you yeah. would do anything to make sure that, that would happen, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's not one to risk. I usually tell guys if they are going down that road to get their sperm frozen first and then you yeah. always have something to fall back on. That's probably the most ironclad way because it's a, there's a chance that you may not become infertile, but there is a chance that you might. So don't take that lightly. 
Yeah, totally. That's a great explanation. So niche topic here. Is there any situation or I guess justification, uh, situation is a better word, where women may benefit from TRT as well? Yeah, absolutely. A lot for sure. Um, the way that it's kind of looked at in the normal kind of standard medical community right now is usually used in postmenopause and specifically mm. as it's related to libido. So for women is postmenopausal and dealing with low libido to an, uh, an extent that it's impacting her quality of life, then it'll be used. Uh, but there are cases where younger women, either pre or perimenopausal may have low androgens as well and may benefit from it, especially in the libido department. It's great at enhancing women's libido. Um, it's important to, you know, dose it appropriately because women yeah. are a lot more sensitive to androgens, you know, than men that can have what's called virilizing effects or masculinizing effects. So they can, you know, develop facial hair, deeper voice, clitoral growth, things like that, that are obviously unwanted or maybe wanted for some, I don't know, yeah. kind of depends on the individual. Um, but you, you gotta be careful with that kind of stuff. Yeah. And is that, I guess, cause when we talk about TRT immediately, you think men, right? Like immediately it's like, yeah. oh, men, TRT, you rarely ever think about women. Is that, um, like a growing space at all? Is it something that's becoming more prevalent? Yeah. So for sure. We see a lot of women who come in either already on testosterone or very interested in it. And a lot of women get put on it. And so, yeah, it's definitely growing in popularity, I would think. And a lot of women really enjoy the way they feel on it. You know, like they get a lot of those benefits, like more, better motivation, better like dopamine response, uh, their libido is enhanced, their yeah. body composition improves and they like it. So it has a lot of benefits in women too. Um, just again, gotta be really careful about dosing because where we're talking about like 200 to, you know, 900 with men with women, that's like, you know, eight to maybe 40 or 50. Like it's a lot smaller, like a 10th, a 10th of it roughly, or even slightly less than that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. So last couple of things I want to talk about here, because, um, oftentimes people are also really scared of potential health related side effects not talking about infertility, but cardiovascular disease, mm -hmm. osteoporosis, et cetera, right? Uh, cancer risk. Um, so I did a deep dive on this relative deep dive a couple months back because I was writing an article, just a general overview of TRT, symptoms of hypogonadism and what the overall evidence shows in terms of risk of disease. Uh, because you hear people talk about oh, risk of cardiovascular disease goes through the roof. Risk, risk of prostate cancer goes through the roof. And then you start to read the data and when used properly, it doesn't seem like that's the case at all. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. And again, it's one of those things where like even a lay person could probably realize that if we're truly doing just testosterone replacement and replacing mm -hmm. normal to eugonadal states, like normal uh, testosterone, mm -hmm. there shouldn't be any effects whatsoever. Side effects should be non-existent. You should be a normal man. Uh, yeah. When problems arise is when it's dosed inappropriately, too highly, mm -hmm. you know, obviously like a bodybuilder who their levels are not at 900, they're at like 3000 or 4000, like that's a huge androgen burden that can have a lot of negative side effects. The exact same goes for again, the, the, the glucose, you know, glucose at like 100 is yeah. totally fine and great for the body. And that's what you need. You turn that into 300. And now you're yeah. going to be in like a coma. So it, it's just yeah. the exact same thing. Um, so it, it kind of gets like uh, thrown around a lot in the media as, you know, having all these detrimental effects, but it's just simply not the case. Um, recently, we had the Traverse trial, which was finally like the first randomized control trial for testosterone 
and looking at its effects on cardiovascular disease. And they found that there was no increased risk of cardiovascular disease with testosterone. And most of us would be like, duh, but for some reason it's been perpetuated and even has a black box warning on it that it does cause cardiovascular disease. Then when asked if that black box uh, you know, warning would be removed after this trial, they basically just said like, I don't know, we'll think about it, uh, which is kind of crazy because this was a massive trial. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, again, really weird where the stigma comes around it. When it comes to like prostate cancer, that's another one. Um, again, normal physiologic levels, you should basically have the exact same risk as a normal guy. So it's true that if you're hypogonadal, you probably have less risk of prostate cancer, you know, meaning so a guy who doesn't have any androgens in their body or a very low amount is going to have less of a risk of developing prostate cancer than you do. You take that hypogonadal man and give him normal levels. You have increased his risk, but you've increased it to baseline. So mm. that's where it kind of got skewed to is it found they had an increased risk. Well, they'd had an increased risk to their prior state, you know, but their quality of yeah. life is so much better, et cetera. So the way we usually look at like prostate is it doesn't cause it, it can exacerbate it. So that's why sometimes like a treatment for prostate cancer is androgen uh, deprivation, essentially. Yeah. That, the thought there is changing a lot too. And it's really interesting. There's a lot of urologies these days that are actually giving TRT to men who have uh, prostate cancer. So it's an evolving field as well. Yeah, I read some of that. And it's just, it's confusing, especially yeah. when you only read for two or three hours, because there's just yeah. so much data on it, right? You could spend days reading that stuff. But it's funny, yeah, because on the cardio cardiovascular side of things, it's like actually being hypogonadal increases your risk of cardiovascular disease. 100%. Um, Likely through on... estradiol, which is the interesting point, you know, because like testosterone okay. doesn't seem to be cardioprotective. It's probably it's probably cardiotoxic in a way or causes issues like, you know, testosterone will increase renin, angiotensin, aldosterone, which increases sodium retention and water retention and higher blood pressure. But estradiol is super cardioprotective. Like, you know, men yeah. die of, of heart disease at much higher rates as women until women hit menopause and then they equal out because now they ah. both have low estradiol. So yeah. estrogen super protective. So again, if we're giving guys testosterone and then crushing their estradiol because we arbitrarily think estradiol is bad for men, where yeah. we could be causing you know negative effects like low bone density, cardiovascular disease, yeah. neurotoxicity, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, people don't understand how physiologically beneficial estrogen is. Like both estrogen and testosterone for both men and women. It's not like one or mm -hmm. the other for men and for women, right? And I actually learned a lot about estrogen during my PhD specifically because my professor did a ridiculous amount of work on estrogen. We actually did a ton of work on bone health. I think we talked a little bit yeah. about this last time. He like discovered, he was one of the people that discovered that there are estrogen receptors present in the stomach in particular. And I can't speak to as to the function of, of estrogen receptors in the stomach, but it, it was definitely cool stuff. And I was like, oh, because I used to think like, yeah, men, you don't want estrogen, right? Like I, I think right. that's like a, a common misconception. And then you yeah. start to learn about bone health and the role of estrogen there, because that's one of the things that we looked at a lot. And then even in men, there's a, a relationship between loss of, of bone density and loss of estrogen as you age, even though that estrogen levels are fairly low in men. Um, anyways, one of the things that I was thinking about with regards to cardiovascular disease is one of the reasons that perhaps super physiological levels of testosterone may be dangerous. Um, could it be also due to heart growth and thickening of the heart walls? 
Yeah, exactly. So yeah. that's usually via like the increased blood pressure. I yeah. think also there's other like, you know, high levels of engines are probably to some extent inflammatory, especially all of the solvents and everything that are coming with that. Um, yeah. So when you're getting a, a level of like 3000, you're usually using underground sources to do so. So somebody made this testosterone in their bathtub, not in a pharmaceutical lab, you know, yeah. and they have to use some pretty harsh solvents that aren't really meant for human use and really kind of cheap carrier oils that again, aren't very good. I mean, truly like mechanical oils like Paul Saladino would, uh, you know, say that all oils are, but seed you know, oil. Yeah, exactly. You're just using all of these highly inflammatory compounds and injecting them in. Like, you know, there was some of the, in my steroid days, some of the the stuff that I would inject in, like it would just start reeking out of your pores. And I'm like, I know I took some years off of my life. You know, it was just yeah. like nasty, but you're injecting that. And so you're causing this, um, this like intra-arterial inflammation, which kind of yeah. starts the cascade of plaque buildup and atherosclerosis. You've increased your blood pressure. So your left ventricle is working way harder. And then as that left ventricle gets too muscle bound and too big, it essentially is useless and it can't pump blood throughout your entire body. So you can develop heart failure. So we see some of these young bodybuilders developing heart failure, which is yeah. usually, you know, in like your sixties and seventies, they're developing yeah. it in their twenties and thirties, which is really sad. It is really sad, man. In particular, I guess, since we see it so much on social media too, how many young bodybuilders have passed recently? It's yeah. like, man, it's really sad. Obviously, for the love of the sport, like they love what they did and they wanted to be the best, but it's it's super super sad. It definitely hit home um, when what was his name? He wasn't younger, but uh, Mountain Dog. What was his name? Oh yeah, John Meadows. John Meadows. I love yeah. that guy, dude. I, know. I used to watch all his stuff on YouTube. And just such a yeah. nice person. And then like, obviously, you don't see it coming, so it's like out of nowhere. That was um, tough. That I, guy, think I I could be wrong, but I think it didn't he have a, a clot or something. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm sure the yeah. years of steroid use didn't help, you know? So, um, you know, that's one thing with like the, when I quoted the Traverse trial, I want to be fair and say like the headline said no increased risk, but when you really dive into it, they actually did have higher rates of uh, venous, th uh, venous thrombo thrombosis. So like VTs or uh, clots, essentially, uh, they had higher rates of AFib. So it's something mm -hmm. to consider, like yeah. higher levels of androgens may cause a hypercoagulable state, like thicker blood. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's always a risk too. And there's people in the TRT community that say like, that's not true, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's still a risk to consider. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And when you were talking about the prostate stuff, one of the things that I was reading in, in one of these large scale meta-analysis is that like, you definitely see an increase in PSA, prostate mm -hmm. specific antigen, but the actual risk of cancer itself didn't seem to be elevated, which is interesting, right? Because we often base our thoughts specifically off biomarkers and yes biomarkers mm -hmm. can tell us something but that biomarker isn't necessarily the whole picture right because right. one thing could elevate a biomarker and that biomarker may be correlated to a particular outcome but there could be something else elevating that biomarker right, right? and or something suppressing it like finasteride for example which a lot of guys take for their hair that will lower psa so mm -hmm. it's uh that's kind of scary for doctors like if they don't know that you're on finasteride and they're measuring your psa and you're always coming back lower you could kind of be masking prostate cancer so it's uh something to consider if you're on that hair medication cool man well i've uh really enjoyed this talk dude i wanted to ask you personally because um you mentioned that you've essentially used a ton of stuff over the years uh, and you mentioned that it's probably been what over a decade since you haven't been using some sort of exogenous hormone. 
Yeah. If you don't mind sharing, like, what do you use now? What did you use? How, why did you decide to make a transition towards what you're doing now? What's like your game plan towards the future to try to be as healthy as possible? Yeah. So what I use was kind of every and anything, like I was a human guinea pig. And a lot of that was due <laughs> to, um, there was a lot of bad information. And that's basically why I like, I'm, I'm doing what I do now is because there was a lot of, I was young once and there was a really a lot of bad information out there. We used yeah. to be told that like, You'll get high blood pressure, but don't worry about it because as soon as you're off, your blood pressure will go back down. You're healthy. Don't worry about it. Um, and then the only other side effects that you really heard about were like hair loss. And I didn't have hair loss. So I'm like, cool. I don't have to worry about that one. And acne. And I was like, well, I'm not really getting acne. A few on my back, no one can see. I don't need to worry about that side effect. So then I just started loading everything up because, mm. you know, we had people like Boston Lloyd. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yes. RIP because he died recently too. Yeah. And he used to tell us all like, you need to be doing three CCs of gear a day. Like that we're talking grams. Like when I'm, t when I prescribe testosterone, yeah. if we're doing that, that's usually like a hundred to 150 milligrams. And now we're talking bodybuilders and things. We're taking grams, like thousands yeah, yeah, of milligrams yeah, yeah. A, a week. Um, so I would, I did a lot of those things, a lot of things that are not meant for human use, like Trenbolone and Equipoise, yeah. like these are created for cattle only and have no human trials on them. Um, and I kept running them all up for a long time. And then probably three, three or four years ago now, I, I definitely felt like cognitive is, it was the thing that scared me. Like cognitively, I felt like I was having a decline. Like I was somebody who had, you know, really excelled in, in academia when I applied myself uh, to my previous story. I you know, was always like straight A's and I did really well. And then I was getting to a point where I felt like I couldn't even articulate in a conversation the thoughts that were going through my head. I was stuttering a lot. My verbal acuity was getting bad. And I started looking into like, maybe it's because of all the shit I'm doing. Like, duh. Yeah. And then I'm, you know, I'm finding all this literature on the neurotoxicity of androgens and then these specific mm. compounds. So that really scared me. That was the first thing that scared me. And then I started, you know, diving into cardiovascular disease and I'm like, mm. oh my God, what am I doing? This is just stupid. And I had the, you know, the epiphany, like, I'm not a bodybuilder. And I always knew I would never be a pro bodybuilder. And then I was like, well, then why the heck am I doing this? It's not without risk. You know, I know all yeah. these pathologies. I was just kind of purposefully ignorant previously. Yeah. And so I, you know, I definitely educated myself and right away I got off. And then I went to the other hyper extreme again, going hundred percent, 110% on everything and got way into longevity. So at this point, you know, my, my focus is very like longevity driven. Like how can I have like the lowest ApoB, the lowest inflammatory markers, you know, testosterone just at the perfect level. And currently I only run probably around 100 to 120 milligrams of testosterone a week. Most of the time, I honestly forget at this point. And I'm a terrible patient because like, you know, we would be like really on you, like, make sure you get your injection. Don't skip. Like, sometimes I go like two weeks. I'm like, oh God, I forgot. Which also speaks mm -hmm. to the point of like testosterone is not that magical because I can obviously go a long time without even remembering that it's not yeah. in me. Um, yeah. And my body has stayed pretty damn decent. I, you know, not to be conceived, but I still feel like I look better than 90% of the population, you know, you look great, a man. ton of muscle. Yeah. yeah. So I've held on to a ton of muscle. I feel great. I'm motivated. My levels usually never go above 700 max is usually where I keep it. Um, outside of that, I take DHEA and pregnenolone because those were very low when I tested. And I think that my prior use just bottomed those out. They were pretty much yeah. undetectable. Um, and those are neurosteroids. So those are very important for cognition and you know, your mental acuity. So I backfilled those. Um, other than that supplements, just like creatine, vitamin D, I do drink a greens powder. One day we'll have to talk about that. I kind of feel like it's a, uh, just an insurance policy because I don't yeah. eat a ton of fruits and vegetables in my day. 
Um, that's about it. So really, really low now, but my focus is way more on longevity. And I do think like having optimal testosterone levels fits into longevity, not super yeah. high, not super low. Of course. Yeah. That's the whole thing about everything. It's like you want a healthy amount of everything, not too high, not too low. Right. Cause people yeah. like hyperfixate on all this stuff, like blood sugar, you don't want it at zero. Yeah. Right. right. Um, cholesterol, you don't want it at zero. It's like, uh, people get to to the extremes on both sides of the of the equation, man. It's crazy. But man, don't I, don't force me to tell you to tell you to eat your fruits and veggies, Adam. Well, I mean, I do, but not nearly to the extent <laughs> that I should. You, no, I know, I know. I I you know I have the conversation about green powders with clients often because they ask me about them, and that's essentially what I say. I'm like, oh, it's an insurance policy, but like we're trying to build some healthy habits here. You're obviously not overweight or obese, but many of the clients that I work with are. And it's just like the green powder is not going to give you the satiating effects that eating fruits and veggies is. It's just going to help you eat less, like focus on the fruits and veggies. And then it's like, if I, again, everybody does what they want in terms of like where they spend their money, but greens powder can be pretty pricey compared to like a multivitamin, right? That's where I'm like, ah, like if you're short on money, just get the multi, but it is what it is. Dude, I switched from like, a, oh, sorry. There's no, 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 you go, ahead. you go ahead. You I was going to say, I switched from a, a multivitamin to the greens powder, just essentially being like, you know, I do have the funds now. And even though it's probably not even that legit, the way that I look at it is like, this is coming from a food source. And I would prefer yeah. to get like some type of food source rather than a synthetic vitamin that's made. And then I d- did the same actually with like for my fat soluble vitamins. I take like an organ pill now because I do yeah. see the validity in eating organ meat, but I'm not about to because I think it tastes disgusting and I don't care. You know, I'll never yeah. be cool and have my shirt off and yell at you to eat organ meat. And so I'm like, hey, I'll take an organs capsule because yeah. that's going to take care of my fat soluble vitamins and I'll take a greens drink. But at totally. the end of the day, if I was comparing the efficacy between a multivitamin and those two, it's probably going to have the same exact results. Yeah. I just feel like if I can get it from a food source, sure. it might be a little bit better. And now at this life, I have the funds to be a little bit better, you know? Yeah, you're. Uh, that's a funny way of, of flexing that you make a better living. It's like, I take greens powders, guys. I don't exactly, even take multivitamins yeah. anymore. <laughs> I got yeah, that. Yeah, AG Greens is the uh, AG Greens is a flex now for your, your yeah. social status. Yeah. This is how you know you're doing well in life. You take a greens powder. That's yeah. hilarious. Dude, last thing it's I want like to say. It's like not having a phone case. Yeah, like not having a phone case. Yeah, just get a new phone. Dude, I, people who don't have a phone case are not smart. I don't know if you use a phone case or not. but I man, do. The iPhones now, it's like they just crack so damn easily. Nothing makes me more mad than that. I'll say... I've only cracked my phone case or my phone screen once in my entire life, which I am nice proud of because I, I, uh, I don't even know where I was going with that. That's a stupid point to bring up anyways. But <laughs> what I was going to say earlier, when you were talking about all the different um, stuff that you were using, I had a, a buddy of mine, a close friend of mine who recently came to Tampa and similar, he used to be, he actually was a competitive bodybuilder and he was talking about trend in particular and he was like, dude, trend is my favorite thing in the world. He's like, yeah. you feel like uh, amazing and like the gains are crazy and stuff. But then he was telling me similar reason to you. He came off of everything pretty much because his blood lipids were through the roof. His blood mm-hmm. pressure was through the roof. And he started like he's he was an undergrad taking some nutrition courses. And he was like, this is not good. And so thankfully, he also came off a lot of the stuff that he was using. Um, anyways, man, I think that pretty much encompasses everything. I know you are tight in time as well. So how about you share 
where people can find you, your YouTube channel, your podcast, and I'll make sure to link everything in the description of the episode as well. Yeah. So the YouTube channel is just my name, uh, Dr. Period Adam Hotchkiss. I recently switched over just my name, easier to find me. Um, and then the Instagram is same thing, uh, at Dr. AE Hotchkiss. Um, so yeah, link it a lot easier that way. YouTube trying to grow. I'm hoping uh, Joey's correct here and it will blow up soon, hopefully, because uh, I have a lot of fun doing it. So even if it doesn't, whatever. Uh, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to meet any of your followers and, and viewers. Yeah, awesome. dude, if your YouTube doesn't grow, it's rigged. I'm sure of that. If it doesn't grow, it is a rigged system because your videos are fantastic. And, and Derek told me I cuss too much. He said I need to stop cussing because they're going to suppress my stuff. I'm like, oh, damn. I guess that is a good point. YouTube does yeah. suppress stuff, unfortunately. Yeah. Dude, if somebody wanted to perhaps reach out to work with you um, and perhaps get some blood work done, see if there's some things that they should be doing to optimize your health, what's the best way to reach you? Is that just social media or email or? Yeah, or just uh, you know go over to Merrick Health because you still got to go by laws and it'll depend on states and everything that you're in. So probably just easier to go through Merrick Health. But there's a lot of people very similar to me, same philosophies that could, you know, you could even just use it for individualized self-service lab work, which is probably the coolest. So you don't have to deal with anyone if you just want to see a peek at your own stuff. Um, you could utilize Atlas, which is my company as well, but we do mainly nutrition coaching. So if you're on this platform, just go to Dr. Joey. He's on his own right now, and uh, he'll take care of you. But if you have any like eating disorder issues, we really you know uh, do a lot over there with my wife Victoria. Um, so we'll take the eating disorders and leave the performance stuff to you for now. <laughs> awesome, brother. Well, thank you so much, man. I hope you have a wonderful day, and we'll catch up soon. You too, man. Thank you.